Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your guest host, Richard Newell. This episode continues our month-long spin-off series called Big Decisions, the Future of U.S. Environmental and Energy Policy. Regular hosts Daniel Ramey and Kristen Hayes are taking a well-earned month off, so we'll broadcast this special series in our same Resources Radio time slot every Tuesday in October, and we'll return to Daniel and Kristen in November. My guest today is Mary Nichols, noted as one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine. Mary has consistently been at the forefront of efforts both in California and across the nation to address air pollutants, including greenhouse gases. In 1972, fresh out of Yale Law School, she filed one of the very first lawsuits under the Clean Air Act. Soon after that, she was appointed to California's Air Resources Board, known as CARB, and Governor Jerry Brown appointed her as the board's chair in 1979. During the Clinton administration, she headed the Air and Radiation Division of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, where she implemented the sulfur dioxide cap-and-trade program that has been so successful at reducing acid rain and the human health impacts of SO2. In 2007, Governor Schwarzenegger appointed her to chair CARB for a second time, where she has served since after being reappointed by Governors Brown and now Newsom. Mary, these are just a few of your accomplishments in a truly remarkable career as an environmental lawyer and administrator. It's really a pleasure to welcome you to Resources Radio. Well, thank you. It's great to talk with you. Mary, there's so many big decisions we face as a country uh, in both environmental and other policy spheres. Uh, Before we get into those topics, I want to go back to the beginning of your career. Um, I understand that at law school you were particularly interested in criminal justice reform, uh, but you later described to the LA Times how you got, quote, hooked on smog. Uh, So tell us that story. How did addressing (laughs) air pollution become your life's calling? Uh, Well, uh, I moved to Los Angeles, I think, is the short answer to that question. Um, I didn't have any California connection, uh, but I married somebody who uh, had worked for a Los Angeles law firm. We both grew up on the East Coast, but my husband uh, was the son of a New York lawyer and he wanted to be um, making his career in a different place and thought that Los Angeles was a place where anybody could come and make their way, sort of go west young man. Um, But it really, uh, Los Angeles and California in general really has been a place of great openness and mobility and it certainly was for us. So we struck out across the country and uh, wound up here and uh, my husband started uh, as a, a litigation associate at a prominent law firm in town and I uh, went looking for a job and found a job with a public interest law firm that was just getting started because this is 1971 when the whole field just began and uh, they had a grant from the Ford Foundation to work on environmental issues and um, they had all divvied up the issues. Uh, these are all people, all guys who had uh, started this operation, and nobody was doing anything about air pollution. It was pretty obvious that air pollution was the number one environmental issue in oh, yeah. Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, I was the youngest, I was the kid, so I got assigned to do air pollution. I had to figure out what you could do about that in a law firm. At that point, Uh, There essentially was no body of law about air pollution at all, but the Clean Air Act had just been uh, signed into law, uh, and um, 
you know, ready, ready to be interpreted. And it was an amazingly uh, concise at that point and powerful piece of legislation. And so um, I got to figure out how to bring uh, some of the first cases under that under that new statute, which is something that I think every young lawyer dreams of. Yeah, yeah I, I'd never really fully appreciated how your career has really spanned the entire implementation of the Clean Air <laughs> Act. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so let's fast forward to today when we're facing a series of enormous problems, the pandemic, the country's racial reckoning, uh, and of course the climate issue. Um, over the summer, you saw firsthand the devastating effects of wildfires in California. Um, so you're a problem solver by nature. Um, do you see a clear path out of these predicaments? And as someone concerned with issues of environmental justice as well, how related are the solutions to all these major challenges? Well, the solutions uh, are related and they need to be related. Um, sort of going back to the very beginning of my history, as I, I think you know, since you read up on me, uh, you know, I, the reason I was interested in criminal justice reform when I went to law school was that I had worked in the civil rights movement, and mm. it was a place that, uh, you know, clearly showed uh, how uh, we didn't call it systemic racism at that point, but that's what it was, uh, you know, affected the futures and the lives of, uh, you know, whole segments of the population. And, you know, the legal system had something to do with creating those problems. And it also had opportunities. And there were uh, really creative people uh, working within that system, including on the prosecution side, who were looking for alternatives to uh, long-term prison sentences, which left people when they came out without opportunities and with a stigma. And so we were trying to create other paths uh, to hmm. divert people out of the system. Well, um, you layer uh, environmental pollution on top of uh, the societal challenges that people face, and um, the effects are synergistic, not just additive. And so um, this uh, connection has been uh, recognized, I think, finally in a, in a broad way and is now part of the discussion about solutions. But it has to be. And if you take what would be an urban air pollution problem and then you look at it as part of a, a, a problem that affects the entire planet, um, it's easy to see how injustice on a global scale, um, but particularly the inability of you know large numbers of people to find ways to support themselves and to um, advance in their in their lives, um, is related to uh, things like. Uh, what they burn, <laughs> you know, the, the fact that people uh, don't have electricity and have to, you know, use uh, oil or dung or coal or whatever to, you know, to heat their homes or to um, cook their food is a, a, a fundamental source of uh, a problem of greenhouse gas emissions as well as of air pollution that affects people directly and shortens their lives. And uh, you can't come up with solutions that don't involve uh, attention to, uh, to equity. And when did um, 
the in, in environmental justice issue really start showing up in a more prominent way in California? Well, uh, there there were fledgling grassroots organizations active, um, really from the 70s on, um, mm. groups that organized around the ports and the rail yards and other or people who were, you know, organized to fight against a particular, um, you know, a, a new uh, power plant that was going to be burning uh, oil or something like that. But um, the, the term environmental justice and the presence of organized environmental justice advocates uh, in Sacramento uh, was really just emerging at the same time that the legislature was passing the original climate legislation. Mm. And so when, uh, when the California legislature decided to adopt the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006, uh, otherwise known as AB 32 in California speak, um, they wrote into the legislation uh, in addition to a requirement that their resources board come up with a plan to um, bring California back to 1990 levels of greenhouse gas emissions uh, by 2020, which was then the Kyoto Agreement that we, in, we ARB, um, include in that um, effort an environmental justice advisory committee and that environmental justice had to be uh, considered as one of the criteria like cost effectiveness uh, uh, that were to be included in the plan that that CARB was was uh, creating. Mm. Yeah, the um, so, so you brought up uh, AB thirty two, and I want to come back to that in a minute. And uh, you know, earlier I had mentioned the cap and trade programs that you've overseen, uh, from the federal asset rain program to California's own emissions tradings programs. Um, and I know that California's landmark AB thirty two law to reduce greenhouse gases had scoping plans that described a major role for regulations and a, a relatively minor role for carbon pricing. Um, but carbon pricing has grown over time. And I, I wonder in the event that there is federal climate action in the coming years, whether you see a similar template being followed. Well, Governor Schwarzenegger, who signed AB 32 into law, wanted the legislation to be based on uh, a cap-and-trade program. He was very taken with the idea of market-based programs. And in fact, one of the reasons why he um, you know, wanted me to come and run uh, this program at, at the Air Resources Board was that he found out that I had been at EPA when the acid rain uh, program mm -hmm. went into effect. And that was the first and uh, at that point, the only uh, cap and trade program that had ever actually been fully implemented. So yeah. he was he was very excited about that, but the Democratic controlled legislature was not at all excited about it. And so in the end, the legislation that was sent to his desk simply said uh, the ARB could include a market based program in the scoping plan if they made certain findings. But the governor was determined from day one that there was going to be a market-based program. And so my job was to figure out how to put that in there without 
completely upsetting the legislature um, and at the same time also uh, integrate it into a program that was going to be based on regulation. Of course, it's a little bit of a misnomer to assume that these two things are completely opposed to each other because you can't have a cap-and-trade program without a regulations that actually create it and enforce it and so forth. But the two things were presented as being stark opposites. Mm-hmm. And to this day, um, the organized uh, groups that fought having a, a cap-and-trade program in the legislation still are not uh, in favor of it, even though it's been operating successfully for, uh, you know, a decade now and um, has raised revenue that's been used to invest uh, in a, a number of, I think, uh, very progressive programs in environmental justice communities and, uh, you know, has also uh, operated as it was intended to as a cap on emissions. Nevertheless, uh, we you know, to this day, there are groups that, that are highly opposed to, to the cap-and-trade program. Some of them would like a carbon tax and think that that could be more uh, effective, more equitable. Um, others are just opposed to any kind of a uh, pricing scheme that would allow people to pay to pollute. Hmm. And so how do you think about that, that balance? Um, I don't know whether it's an optimal balance or just a balance between carbon pricing and other regulations uh, to draw down emissions. I think we need uh, solutions that are all of the above. I think we probably need a market program uh, like a cap-and-trade program how much it would cover of the economy is a is a question that needs to be considered at the national level. Here we've included um, industrial sources and fuels. Um, we also have a market-based program that only applies to the suppliers of automotive fuels, uh, a low, which is called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, mm-hmm. which is a separate regulation. We have an emissions standard for motor vehicles, uh, which um, directly regulates the amount of greenhouse gases that vehicles can emit. And we have a bunch of other regulatory programs, including a requirement for uh, carbon-free energy. So it's a, it's a complicated uh, system, uh, but these things interact with each other. And, um, you know, so for example, if you have a regulation that has the utilities uh, going out and uh, purchasing or building more renewable energy projects and phasing out fossil fuels, um, they don't have to buy as many allowances from the cap and trade program. So, you know, it's a, we have looked at this mix and I don't know that we've got it perfect, but it appears as though at least we've been able to um, keep the whole thing together, um, reduce emissions, and do it in a way that has not only not hurt the California economy, but I think demonstrably has been beneficial. Yeah, so AB 32 was only 13 pages long. Uh, I've even heard it compared to somebody jumping out of an airplane with the intent of designing the parachute on the way down. Um, <laughs> yet, you know, uh, the California Air Resources Board has successfully enacted so many 
uh, path-baking programs on the basis of that, uh, you know, relatively brief legislation. Um, you know, and it seems that a careful process um, has been um, at least one of the keys to that success. So, you know, do you agree with that? Um, and, and how does the Air Resources Board go about designing and implementing regulations, particularly given the complexity that you just uh, laid out? Well, uh, the ARB is an interesting um, example, I think, of uh, how you can combine a very democratic process with a, with a highly expert uh, bureaucratic process. Um, the board itself is comprised of appointees of the governor who have to be confirmed by the legislature. Uh, half of them are elected officials at the local level who serve on their local air pollution boards, and the others are uh, filling special uh, seats with special qualifications like automotive engineer, uh, or in my case, attorney. Uh, or physician, um, fields that were considered necessary to have a, a, a really uh, effective air pollution control program. After AB 32 passed, the board increased in size again, uh, and we now have two legislative appointees who are to um, represent environmental justice uh, communities or have expertise or experience in dealing with environmental justice issues. And we also have two legislators who actually serve uh, ex officio. So they are liaisons in effect to the legislature because the legislature realized how um, important this program is and how uh, difficult it would be for them to actually try to create the whole program themselves. So they were delegating clearly a lot of power to this unelected body, as people often say. Um, and uh, they wanted to make sure that, you know, they kept an eye on what we were doing and that we were doing things the way they would like to see them done. Um, we had a history at the Air Resources Board going back to the 1970s of um, doing things that were controversial in various communities at various times. And um, in California, with these boards and commissions, and there's many of them, um, there's, a, there's a, a history and experience and expectation um, that you really listen to the public and not just to the regulated community, although you have to listen to the regulated community as well. But, um, you know, we meet in open sessions, our hearings, you know, are take as long as they need to. Um, and um, everybody is uh, invited to come in. When AB 32 passed, however, there was also a whole additional layer of advisory committees that were set up, including a committee of economists who looked at the design of the cap-and-trade program to see if they thought that it was um, the, the right way to do things, and, you know, a technical advisory committee, the the Environmental Justice Committee that I've already uh, mentioned. And um, we set up a website and we had thousands of people, literally from all over the state, 
who wrote in with ideas and suggestions about how California should go about addressing global warming. There was a huge amount of public interest in this program from the beginning. And while we don't get quite that level of attention, you know, at our monthly meetings anymore, um, we, we get a lot of interest on the part of all kinds of different groups from around the state, people with ideas for how we should be doing things differently or better, people criticizing the program for not being strong enough or, um, you know, from time to time for being too strong. But either way, um, we, we do our work in a very public setting. And it, I think it um, makes the program more durable, more, more sustainable. Yeah, one of the one of the words that comes to mind as you're speaking about this is is the word trust and, you know, the the need to build trust with the legislature, with the with the public and, you know, also with the, uh, you know, whoever happens to be in the executive leadership at a time seems like it's incredibly important to the stability. Of this well, program. and I guess I should have said also in response to your question that um, in addition to this political process and the fishbowl that we operate in, we also have a staff of uh, close to 1,500 people wow. and a very yeah. large proportion of them are highly trained uh, engineers and scientists and researchers who work on specific aspects of these uh, uh, problems and who interact with their peers in academia. We have a very long-standing, strong tie to the University of California uh, so that, you know, we have graduate students and faculty members who are working on helping to solve the problems that we face as well. So I want to turn um, uh, now to the uh, back to the federal level and uh, and the, uh, the the current administration and the word rollback has perhaps become the defining word of the current administration in relation to environmental policy. Um, the New York Times recently counted uh, 100 different environmental rules being reversed under the current administration. Many of those, uh, including the reversal of vehicle emission standards, are issues at the forefront of your work uh, in California, of course. And so I'm wondering. Uh, in the event of a Biden administration, where you would say the immediate priorities should be at the U.S. EPA? I think uh, transition was the operative word. Um, the standards that are currently in effect for conventional air pollutants and greenhouse gases are not good enough to get us where we need to go. If we assume that we're still aiming or we should be aiming for uh, a, a goal of uh, climate neutrality, uh, where you know we are no longer um, putting more into the atmosphere than it can absorb, and we're taking out uh, as much as we can and storing it in trees and soils or in geological formations. And we can talk more about all of those things. Uh, you know, enough to uh, prevent the continued warming from going to catastrophic levels. If that's the goal that we are willing to accept as a country, which I hope we will, because it would bring us back into uh, the realm of, of all nations that signed on to the Paris Accord, um, we're, we're gonna have to move fast to make some big changes. And something like the uh, the plan that was adopted in the Obama administration, the Clean Power Plan, um, it, it's not good enough. Um, and 
we're going to have to find ways to leapfrog over some of our current regulatory problems. So I don't think we can do this all or much without legislation, although mm. there's a lot we can do. And one of the things we can do, I think, is to, with respect to the cars and trucks and the transportation system, sort of get back to the uh, bargaining table with industry and come up with a way of looking at these regulatory programs going forward. So I think just, you know, defaulting to where we were before Trump came into office is not going to be the right solution. I think we're going to have to find a way to continue to make progress, which is very much like the framework agreement that we came up with in California that five companies have signed on to um, and use that as, a, as, as what we do for the next couple of years while we negotiate about a whole new set of standards, which are going to very rapidly get us to um, a fleet, which is uh, zero emission vehicles, um, you know, by, by midpoint in, in this century. Yes, yeah, so say a little bit more about that. There was a recent announcement in California. Uh, maybe t you know, tell us a little bit about that and, um, and how you think that's going to proceed. Well, the governor uh, recently signed uh, several big executive orders relating to climate, but the one that I was most directly involved with is the one that deals with the transportation system. And it will require that um, we move to the zero emission for new vehicles uh, by 2035, and then the fleet as a whole has to turn over by 2045. And that's going to include trucks and tractors and off-road vehicles. And um, so it's a it's an exceedingly ambitious goal, which also will require huge investments, uh, public and private investments in the infrastructure for fueling all these new vehicles. But it's a, a goal that not only fits the size of the problem, but it lays out an ambitious um, agenda that uh, will give industry and local city planners and uh, anybody who's sort of thinking about what transportation is going to look like in this state, uh, you know, in the next 25 years, um, a path forward. And so it was greeted, I think, with uh, excitement uh, by many, but also with a sense, uh, even by the auto industry, that um, this is the path that they're on anyway. They may not like having deadlines or having, you know, state mandates to do this, but they understand that this is the direction that the world needs to go in and it's what's going to be demanded of them. And, um, you know, by and large, although it's a, it's a challenge, it's a challenge that they are uh, already uh, along the path of, of trying to, um, to succeed at. And how much of the... Um executive order needs to be followed up by any additional legislative action, or is it uh, now in the hands of, of CARB to develop specific regulations? What else has to happen? Well, the executive order is aimed at executive agencies, so it directs yeah. CARB and uh, our sister agencies where needed to 
develop the regulations to actually implement it. But I think it also, in a couple of places, uh, specifically invites the legislature to also step up and um, adopt these goals and add additional uh, requirements if, if they want to do that. Um, particularly, this is the case with respect to um, petroleum fuels in California, where um, because of existing legislation, the governor uh, is not able to require um, the oil and gas industry to stop using uh, fracking techniques for producing fuel. Mm -hmm. And so he has uh, asked the legislature to um, to change that piece of legislation and give him something to, to sign. But in general, um, these are things that could be done without legislation. But um, if you want to, if, as we do, I think, um, you know, have it be something that is widely accepted and um, something that the legislature wants to put its own stamp on, then they will want to come and put their hands on it as well. Interesting. So we've talked a little bit about uh, technology specifically in the context of um, uh, vehicles, uh, but technology developments, you know, will of course be key more broadly in facilitating yes. an energy transition and, and a reduction in emissions. So what do you believe should be the role of environmental entrepreneurs uh, and venture capital uh, in the coming years? And, and what are the levers that are available to public policymakers to facilitate and support that kind of private sector innovation? Well, the role of environmental entrepreneurs has been key to um, the creation and the implementation of our climate program, going back to the beginnings of the vehicle emission standards and of uh, AB 32, uh, both of which had very significant support from Silicon Valley uh, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs who uh, cared deeply about the problem of global warming, but also who saw an opportunity for uh, California being a first mover and for um, the businesses that, that they are uh, directly involved in. So um, this has been, um, as it has turned out, you know, Tom Steyer, just to give one example of a well-known mm -hmm. uh, individual who, who participated in the development of this program, um, you know, these are people who have literally put their money where their mouths are and uh, who are um, uh, who are believers that uh, the private sector needs to play a role in making sure that these programs are, are created and delivered in a way that um, that benefits uh, the, the greatest number of people. So um, that's a. Uh, that, that's a given. Uh, and as it has turned out, um, California has attracted uh, venture capital to a greater extent than any other state, in large part because of this program. And it um, is one of the reasons why other states have been so interested in um, adopting their own variations on this hmm. program. Yeah, exactly. Um, Mary, you have really truly extraordinary depth uh, and first and experience in crafting environmental law and policy. And so I'm wondering, what do you think are some of the big environmental decisions that are out there looming on the horizon, either in the public 
or private sector that you think we aren't paying sufficient attention to right now? You know, what should we be thinking more about? Gosh, uh, <laughs> there's there's so many. As if climate uh, change wasn't, wasn't <laughs> yeah, enough, right? Like, what, what more do you want, really? <laughs> well, I suppose, um, you know, the, the, the issues of, of air pollution as it affects people around the globe, because increasingly what was a problem in Los Angeles, although it still is stubbornly persistent, at mm. the levels that we see today are uh, really a tiny fraction of what they were, you know, 40 years ago. Meantime, you've got other cities in China and India and in Indonesia and elsewhere that are just um, almost unlivable. And, the, you know, the World Health Organization has declared that air pollution is the biggest threat to, to people's lives. Uh, so, uh, I mean, other other than wars, it, it's what we've done ourselves with our energy and transportation systems that are causing these problems. So you've got to get to some kind of a global consensus about addressing them. And, and it has to be done in a way, I, you know, we talked about equity before, but where there's a, a sense of shared responsibility. I think the thing that has made this um, so painful for me as a person who's worked in this area um, is watching how not just Donald Trump and his administration, but other leaders of a similar kind of right-wing populist bent uh, have turned other countries backwards in terms of their willingness to address these issues that affect the health and well-being of their own people as well as the planet. And then when you see the response to the COVID-19 pandemic and you see these same things playing out, um, but in a much starker and, um, you know, less even less appealing fashion when, you know, you see people uh, demonstrating for the right to not wear a mask or, you know, violently protesting against uh, being asked to take measures uh, to protect not just their own health, but the public health. The, the lack of a consensus around the need to act to protect public health and the lack of willingness to uh, trust science really at all not to have the scientists dictate what we do but just to believe that they know what they're talking about and need to be you know need to be addressed seriously is uh, that's probably the biggest challenge that i see so it's not any one issue i mean you could say all right um, fresh water is probably you know after air the second biggest global problem just finding enough of it and of course global warming makes that problem even worse um you know what it's doing to our ability to feed people but um it but it is all interconnected yeah and, and it's a it's a good reminder that as you know sometimes we uh we can forget you know particularly when focused on you know very large complex issues like climate change you know conventional air pollutant um and the the role of science and decision making and you know of course u.s leadership um, are things that, uh, you know, we can also take for granted, but need to constantly remind ourselves. Um, so this, Mary, this has been a, a truly fascinating conversation. Um, but before we go, every week uh, we close with our, what we call our top of the stack feature. So I'm sure some of our listeners would be really interested to hear what you've read, what you've been watching, or what you've heard recently related to environmental issues uh, that you found particularly interesting. 
Uh, well, there's a new book which is sitting on my nightstand called uh, All That We Can Save, which I've just started dipping into, but which is uh, uh, really, uh, I, I think, is going to be one of my favorite books of the year. Um, but um, I have to say that although I read a lot of stuff for my work and probably every book about climate that comes along winds up, uh, you know, on my shelf because mm. I feel like I have to keep looking at them. And people are now starting to write histories about um, smog and about the about the air program, uh, which is also pretty exciting um, just because of having been a part of it all. Uh, but for both entertainment and enlightenment, um, I like reading fiction. Um, some of it is dystopian, um, like Octavia Butler, who foreshadowed, who saw what things were going to be like today, you know, decades ago, mm. and wrote about this. Or the current uh, favorite of mine, uh, the Florida author Carl Hyacin, whose latest book called Squeeze Me is a book about um, the effects of uh, climate change in Florida um, and about a, uh, a president who resembles strongly our current president and um, about, uh, uh, about pythons that escape from the swamps and cause all kinds of damage and it's a, it's hysterically funny and a great a great relief from the day-to-day -day, uh the day-to-day -day work of actually implementing these programs well you've you've added a wide range of uh interesting reading to the stack so thanks so much for that mary well you know all that remains for me is to really sincerely thank you uh, mary for joining us this week uh, you've you've given us a lot to reflect on thank you thank you it was a great conversation You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental energy and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.